When we were sent away by our parents, you're going to go to college, and you're like going, why? <laughs> and then my first like year there was like, I was in culture shock, because I didn't know anybody from LA ever, or San Francisco, or Portland, or wherever. And they had a different vocabulary, and they definitely had different social customs than I was aware of. But what happened to our generation is that we were kind of, you know, pulling along this other epic time of history and process and experience, and we were going across the cultural divide in the chasm, you know, of becoming an American, more on an intellectual level, and grabbing onto that shore of two continents, basically, and then trying to pull them together, or trying to even build a bridge across it. You know, because, you, because you're trying to make these two non-worlds of each other come together for you. And that's difficult in academia. Because academia doesn't even realize how it's inculcated within its own cosmos. And it belongs to a different continent. It belongs to a different history, a different litany. And it's certainly not this cosmos and this litany at all. One of my professors, she says, you know what makes a light bulb bright? The filament. And what makes it burn so bright is there's two poles and that electricity is surging through that little piece of wire and it's illuminating. And that's who you are. So be careful as you will burn out and fall off. Welcome to Language Keepers, Emergence Magazine's six-part journey into the struggle for indigenous language survival in California. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. La Mesa, this podcast series is a continuation of Language Keepers, Emergence Magazine's award-winning multimedia story, where we explored the current state of four different indigenous California languages and how dedicated families and communities are facing the challenges of revitalizing some of the most vulnerable languages in the world. In 2019, our filmmaking team, led by director Adam Lofton, crisscrossed California, witnessing the language revitalization efforts of Talawadaini, Kuruk, Wukchumni, and Kawaiasu communities. This critical work is more important than ever as the dwindling number of last remaining fluent speakers document and impart their cultural and traditional knowledge to the next generation of language keepers. Many indigenous communities around the world have developed traditional ecological knowledges through generations of intimate relationship with their lands. Whether it be the identification and application of medicinal plants, the tending of healthy oak and redwood forests, or sustainable fire management, 
traditional ecological knowledges are embodied through culture, spirituality, and language. Having historically rejected the validity of these knowledge systems, Western scientists are now increasingly recognizing the importance of traditional ecological knowledge and are turning to indigenous scientists to learn how to live sustainably within our ecosystems. The history, nuances, and application of these ways of knowing are often held within indigenous languages. Thus, language survival is directly linked to the preservation of biodiversity and living in balance with our ecosystems. In California, dozens of Native American communities are grappling with what is at stake if they lose their language, for their children, for their culture, and for the land itself. Though it's difficult to establish an exact number, it's thought that thousands of languages have disappeared globally in just the last few hundred years, with the majority of the world's population, increasingly speaking, only a handful of dominant languages. According to UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, 50 to 90% of all languages that exist today are likely to disappear by the end of the next century. The Talawadaini language is among the roughly 40% of today's endangered languages that are at risk of vanishing altogether. The Talawadaini people and language originated among the redwood forests and abundant rivers of the northernmost Pacific coast of California, near the Oregon border. They named the Kushchu and Thluk long before they were called redwood and salmon. Theirs is a language that knows the names and ways of the great redwood forests and the Pacific coastal ecosystems. Lauren Metlashne Bomlin was raised in these forests, and is currently the sole remaining fluent speaker of the Talawadaini language. At a young age, Lauren was chosen and entrusted by his elders to hold and pass on their culture. Today, Lauren and his family endeavor to heal generations of trauma as they work to revitalize their language and practice and preserve their traditions and songs. Well, as a child growing up, I heard the language from my mom's siblings. They were all Elwin speakers. When they went to school for the first time, they had to learn English. They grew up there at Neely Chundan. They were born there. My mother was born there. Was surrounded by a, a, an old growth ribbed forest at that time that hadn't been logged yet. And just this little opening meadow along the edge of the river bank. So they just grew up in this other kind of place. There wasn't even a road up to the village. And they really followed all the cyclical patterns, like, you know, the certain time of year you dried surfish, then you've got salmon, and you got deer meat, acorns, and huckleberries, and all these places they'd go in the mountains that they would go camp there and procure all these foods, put them away for the winter. They just kind of grew up in this little different shape of a world, so they did come from a different time in that way. I love the story that my uncle shared with us. Uh, he said that we went, they used to walk three miles over to Redwood School over by Fort Dick, and they wouldn't put their shoes on until they got to the playground because, you know, they didn't wear shoes, and shoes were expensive anyway, so you only wore them when you went around other people. They would get to the edge of the field where the school was, and they'd all, you know, wipe their feet off and put their shoes on and go in the building. The teacher was Alice Huzzy, I think was her name, 
And so she had to teach them English. So she showed him drawings of animals, for example. And so he said that the first day she held up a picture for a monkey, they, they just laughed. Like, what on earth is that? You know, like, and then she would say to them, monkey. And then they go, monkish, you know. So they just phonologically shifted it into Dini. And then it stuck. So from that generation on, the word for monkey is monkish. He said she showed them another picture, and it was this thing with a big, long mouth with teeth in it, and it was an alligator. They never saw such a strange thing. And so they didn't say alligator or crocodile or something. They said tatentes, nice flat mouth. So they coined a name for it right on the spot. So to this day, we call them tatentes. So this was their experience going, you know, going into the new world. By the time I had grown up, of course, the railway force had been logged. There was a paved road put on South Bank Road. Um, they got electricity, I think, a couple of years before I was born. And we had an outhouse. We didn't have flushing water, you know, all that kind of stuff. We'd go outside. So I was in that period of my transition. Um, and what language were you speaking at home? I, well, I heard English a lot. When the uncles came around and when the aunties came around, I heard Daini. So I heard a lot of Daini. And then, of course, we had to go to this place called school. And I really hated it because there was, I couldn't relate to school because there was nothing at school that reflected anything about me. Yeah, I was learning math and, you know, history or whatever and science or whatever, and I love science. But to me, when I would get on the bus in the morning and the door would slap shut behind me, I psychologically and emotionally was in a different world. And then I would go through that horrible experience all day long. And it was an hour out and an hour back every day on the bus to get to school from our house. And then the, the diesel would roll around behind the back of the bus and come in the windows. And by the time I get to school, I wanted to throw up. That was a different place for me to cross, you know, like a veil. I was kabunk in that world and kabunk, I was back in my world. And so I endured that world, you know, for like, well, ended up getting a master's. But I mean, at first it was eighth grade and then it was, through high school, which was horrible. And then I went to the university and it was much better. And we were the very first generation. They said, you're all going to college. And we're like, oh, why, what's that? You know, why do you want to go there? Well, because all the rubber trees are cut down and you won't be able to work in a mill or follow a tree until you retire. Or you know, Well, you didn't retire, you just work till you die, basically, in the forest industry. But um, it'll be gone anyway. So you're gonna have to find a different kind of job. My mother and a bunch of women, they started working at the Humboldt State University and they created the teaching program because they thought if they could get their children to become teachers, then when they taught children in school, that they would have a fair chance to learn our history and our, of who we are too. So of course my mom's philosophy is, well, if you helped one in 10, you've done something. It's better than what it was when we started. So if you helped one in 10, you made a difference. And my dad taught us things like, don't ever be jealous. He said, that's a wrong way to be. He said, jealousy is a killer and it ruins you. It doesn't ruin them. You know, so he said, so when somebody does good, get behind them and just, you know, cheer them on and say, good for you. So they were very socially active in that way. I was unaware that America was in the civil rights movement. <laughs> you know, it's like, that was way out of my scope of reality because I never left Delnert County, so. San Francisco or Portland would be like, might as well go to the moon, you know, kind of thing. So that I didn't realize was happening. 
you know, until later. I mean, when I think diversity, I go, whoa, yeah, this is really amazing what's going on right here. And when did you start to learn the language? Uh, well, um, I, some of my earliest memories of learning language, I don't know, I got these lofty goals somewhere, like I wanted to be able to talk to God in my language only. So, I guess I'm gonna have to learn this language. <laughs> And, and then my mom's oldest sister was 19 years older than my mother. My mother was the baby of the nine children. So she was more like a grandma. I would go down and pick her brain all the time. And then I have a cousin that was being raised sometimes by her. And then we marched all over the place in the woods and the river and on the mountains and all over the darn place. And so we'd be out in the woods and we'd say, well, Dion, you know, what's this called? You know, like some kind of a berry or something. Well, then we'd go back to the house and ask his grandma, my auntie. You know, she'd tell us, you know. And then, and then I, want, I don't know why I got interested in making baskets. So she goes, well, you're going to have to get some roots. You know, so, and I kind of understood what that meant. So you go to these logs and you tear them open and you get these roots out of them. And, then you, and she'd cook them for us and she'd peel it and scrape it. And so she was mentoring us in how to do certain things. My mom had this old typewriter. In those days, it had red, half red and half black ribbon. It was like the old-fashioned typewriter. But it was a sacred, you know, we could never touch it. Because in those days, if you dropped it this much, you would throw it out of register. So when I'm not at the house, you never touch my typewriter, you know. You know? So she'd be gone, and we'd sneak over to the cupboard and sneak it out and put it on the table, roll a piece of paper, and we would type Danny on it. I wish that I would have somehow saved some way, you know, like when I first wrote one through five or something, you know. And then we did plants and we did fish types and bird types or whatever, you know. And then by the time mom would get back, we'd sneak it back in the cupboard, set it down, you know, because we don't want to ruin it. So there was plenty of language around that generation right above me. And then, of course, not to mention the old people. You know, the people who were in their 90s, the people who were in their 80s, the people who were born in the 1870s, the 1880s, and the 1890s, you know, and then finally the people who were born in the 1900s. I knew all of, a lot of those people uh, as a kid. They were a great resource. They probably didn't learn English until they were probably in their 30s or 40s. Starting in the 1700s, the Talawa Daini were in contact with the Spanish and Russian traders that combed California's shores. Following the California Gold Rush of 1849, a mass invasion of white settlers descended upon the Talawa homeland, and thousands of Talawa Daini were murdered and imprisoned by miners and the U.S. military. Out of this devastation came a new Talawa Daini word, Nachmiti, for white man which directly translated into the knife brandisher. The Talawadani genocide officially lasted from 1853 to 1856. But their subjugation, murder, incarceration, and repression has persisted through the 21st century. By 1900, California's Native American population had plummeted from an estimate of over one million people to just 15,000. In 1902, the last pre-contact Talawadaini person living in a remote village on the Smith River was chased into the forest and murdered by a local white settler. By 1910, 
that the U.S. Census counted only 121 Talawadeni in California and 383 in Oregon. In 1924, the Indian Citizenship Act was passed by Congress, granting citizenship to all Native Americans born in the United States. The granting of citizenship was not a gesture of reparations or social justice. Rather, it was considered a strategic move by the federal government to absorb tribes and nations into mainstream American life. The privileges of citizenship were largely governed by state law, and the right to vote was often denied to Native Americans in the early part of the 20th century. Additionally, state governments often restricted tribal control over their own lands. In the case of the Talawa Daini, the state of California made subsistence hunting and fishing illegal, forcing many to become day laborers in the region's logging, mining, and fishing industries. Born in 1956, Lauren Bomlin was part of a generation straddling a traditional way of life and mainstream American society, and one of the few able to learn from the surviving first-language speakers of Talawa Daini. My memory of language is really old for me. I used to go be coached by an elder, Daishri Sam Lopez. And I'd go sit in his living room with him and we'd sing. He says, well, you know, you're going to have to learn to speak our language. You know, and being a kid, you're like, well, why? And he goes, well, if you want to compose your own song, you're going to have to know what you're saying, don't you? Like that, and I go, good point. So if I'm going to make new songs, because you're supposed to make songs for your generation, you know, too, you're supposed to know their songs, the previous generations, and then you add your generation's songs to the collection. So I guess I better learn to speak this language completely. Nonsense would ha say, a detun slit wagging street. Nonsense would ha say, a detun slit wagging street. Nonsense would ha say, a detun slit wagging street. Nonsense would ha say, a detun Language and culture, language and spirituality, and, and many other things brings you a worldview. And until you have like a, one language here, and you know, that's got a different history, and then another language with a different history, and then you become fluent in both of them, you begin to realize that they're actually describing the world very differently. Earlier in my life, when I would want to ask the question in my mind or in discussion about the language, I approached the question as an English speaker. And then I was wondering why I was getting these weird responses from the fluent people, because they're like going, well, our language doesn't work like that, or we don't think like that. You know, and you're like going, well, just can't you just tell me? And then they're struggling with trying to say it to me. But then when I went past that myself, I go, oh, yeah, our language is not operating in the same way. I mean, it has a different way of viewing the world. 
Back in the beginning of Genesis and after Genesis was completed, everybody spoke one language. You know, the fish and the birds and the bees, everybody all spoke one language and they all could communicate and they all knew each other and everybody had their own personalities and so forth. After Genesis, these laws were laid down on the earth that you live by them. These are the laws of the land and shall live like this and you shall live here a long time if you live within the laws of the land. And one of the laws is, is that whatever you kill is for food. So in other words, you don't take life easily. One time, Chutzasne, how he got his name, Chutzasne, which is panther, he breaks the law and he goes and he attacks a doe and he you know, gets her on the ground and he snaps her neck. And then at that point, he should eat her, right? And he just walks off. In Genesis, there are three progenitors, and one of them is thunder. And so above in the sky, thunder says, die one walk on done. He yells at him and shakes the ground, and he stops, and he goes, you know, it spooked him. And it's supposed to, because when, that, when thunder, that kind of thunder, you're supposed to pay attention. Well, any time in life. But anyway, so he um, says, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm stealthy and I can walk just quietly and I've got sharp fingernails and I've got sharp teeth and I'm muscular and, you know, I've got a lot of ability and I just, I did it because I could. Well, he broke one of the laws of Genesis right there. So Thunder tells him, from now on then, so when you go to attack anything, you're going to have to whip your tail first throw it in the sky, and then it's going to see it and run. You're going to work now for the rest of time for your food's no longer free to you. So if you ever watch a panther or a house cat, right before they pounce, they wiggle their tail. You know, so that's chutzasne, the one who continually has to shake it. So, you know, so for just learning one noun, and then you get to hear the story, and then within that's all your mores and all your cultural values. It talks about Genesis. It talks about the laws of the universe and how you're supposed to live within the relationship with all those things, all by learning one noun. So it just gets richer and richer that way. So the language and culture and perspective, it just becomes like an illumination. Like, you, whoa, there's so much in that story telling us how to live in relationship to all this around us. And then that was his reminder. Every time you see him whip his tail, He's telling you, well, this is mine. I'm wearing, this is my mark that I wear for the rest of eternity and my descendants because I did this. And then that goes into something else. So whatever you do wrong, I do wrong, affects your family for four generations. So be very cautious and careful what one does because whatever you form in your life becomes formed in their life for four generations. So pair panther still paying. You know, he has to whip his tail. So I see it as a big mesh, like a big net that was cast on the universe, and it's all linked together through these knots. It's all linked back into one massive connection, and that's how it makes us all one. It all came from Genesis. When they let the sky loose into the universe and filled the abyss with light, and then they created our planet, and then they put water on it by pelting it with deitsu, which are like meteors, uh, until it filled it up with water. And then life was then made at that point with sky and water and earth created life as we know it. So it's from the most simple life form all the way to the most 
complex life form, whatever that would be, that we're all just a piece of the web of life. And we're all interconnected and all interrelated. It's all interlaced into one, one gigantic entity. Yeah, we forget about it every day. Yeah, what we were taught growing up is that when old people talk to you, you listen to them. And my auntie would scare us, she'd say, you know them old people, you have to be careful of them old people. And I go, why, and what do you mean? You know, she goes, well, you know, they have strong prayer and they can heal you with their prayers. They can use that prayer to kill you if they want to. So if they ask you for anything, just go get it. Never give them an excuse to say a bad prayer for you. Just good prayers for you. So like when you're growing up, you go, I got it, okay, I got the message, you know. And of course, you just love them anyway. And then as you get to know these people, they're just these golden nuggets. They're just full of love. I would be a kid running around, you know, like with the rest of my cousins, you know, Fort July, we always had a big picnic down below. A whole bunch of the tribe would come and the nation would come down. They'd, you know, swim and we'd, you know, eat and stuff. And they'd come with, Chanta Sinta. And I want to be running off with all of my cousins, right? And they go, I'm going to talk to you. When the older generations would sit you down and talk to you, and they'd tell you, you're going to do certain things with your life, and you're going to be a teacher when you grow up. And I, like, in myself, not in front of them, I chuckled, like, I am not going to be a teacher. I hate school. I was in the classroom for 34 years, and those old people knew something. Uh, they were right, you know. I mean, you know what I mean. They were something they saw in me, you know. So they taught me things, and they sit down and gave me instructions on things. And then, of course, I was a willing learner. I think for multiple reasons, but one of them was my parents, for one, because they they also gave it value. So then I became this like holder of information or expression or ideas and concepts. And then it's been my life's work to try to pass that to the next generation of people. Through language, through singing, through dancing, through storytelling, through basketry, through regalia making. So it, it, it's, it's been a duty, it's been a responsibility, but it's been an extreme love to, to let that flow and be one of the conduits, one of the vessels of the universe to support that happening, to encourage that to happen, to share that to happen. And that's been a really important part of the work that I've done. This is why I've spent decades recording language, why I've gone to graduate school and got my degree in linguistics, because I really wanted to understand the nuts and bolts of my language. And so all of that work put together has helped me do that. And it has driven me to the point that I am today in what I understand and how I can use and why I would use and why I want to use and why I wish and hope that everyone else in the world, doesn't matter if they're Dany or not, they, have, they should be able to share in this. Hey, uh, we 
A suburban cul-de-sac on the outskirts of Crescent City is the epicenter of Talawadaini language revitalization. A few doors down from Lauren and Lena Bomlin's home, the 43 letters of the Talawadaini alphabet loop their way around the walls of Ruby and Piawa Bomlin's living room. The alphabet represents sounds not found in the English language, such as adjectives, diphthongs, and glottalized vowels and consonants. Though Talawadaini has traditionally been an oral language, writing has increasingly become an integral part of teaching and documentation. With Lauren's help, the Talawadaini alphabet was finalized in 1997. Uh. In 2014, Ruby and Piowa moved back to Crescent City from Eugene, Oregon, where Piowa was getting an advanced degree in linguistics from Oregon State University. They returned home and created a language nest for their children in order to support the much-needed revitalization of the Talawadaini language. A language nest is an immersion-based approach to language revitalization in early childhood education and is considered a vital learning environment in re-establishing a new generation of first-language speakers. Maps, lunar cycles, chalkboards, and lesson plans, all in Talawadaini, cover the walls and the desks of their three children, Hune, Santas, and Wasaini, transforming their living room into their classroom. In order to create a state-recognized homeschool environment, Ruby and Piowa have created hundreds of educational resources in the Talawadaini language, all meeting California's rigorous Common Core standards. They are constantly expanding these resources to keep up with the demands of their growing children's never-ending need for more language. Na na 
Westani shed et lani shrednata. Flat do we ne sun? Ho 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 No matter where you go, no matter what you do, if you live in America, you're going to have a huge amount of English input. And we knew that as soon as we introduced them to the school system, the English would just be overwhelming. And we had seen so many cases of families who had gone from, you know, even immersion language classrooms or immersion home experiences and then enter, you know, the first, second grade school experience and completely lose the language that they know. So I'm Ruby Tuttle and I am a Yurok, Yuki, Maidu and Kaduk person and I live in Crescent City, California. In our Dotyatyup, in our family, we have my husband, Paiwa, and I have three children, Hune, who's 10, Santos, who's nine, and Wasaini, who's four. He who say Trulune. Trulune? Yeah, Trulune. Daddy, how do you spell my name? Oh, oh, Iowa is a linguist and a language worker, a graphic designer, and a really great father. My top. He is very loving and kind. Just the things that he does every day makes us happy. Hune is very strong-willed indigenous young lady, and she's a dancer and a singer, an actor, an avid reader, you know, constantly looking for new things to learn and new avenues to help her express her creative side. What do you think about knowing your language? What do you think about it? Um, I like it. My mom is my teacher. Santos is a wonderful young man. He's very sweet, kind, intelligent, and just unconditionally loving to everyone. Wasaini is a hoot. You gotta quit moving around though, bud. So let's try to sit still for a second, okay? I can't do that. No, it's too hard. You gotta move like a turtle or a sloth, okay? Real slow. Wasaini is sweet, but very opinionated, energetic, you know, to the extreme, but very artistic. And he has an eye for color that I wish I had in his drawings and his creations. He's going to be a very artistic person. I can see that if he lets that come through. You've made a pretty large life choice to teach your children with the goal of becoming a next generation of fluent speakers. And I'm wondering 
What motivated you to, to commit to this? When I found out that I was pregnant with my daughter, my husband had been working on language and trying to become a speaker. But we come from a variety of backgrounds. On my mom's side, I'm Yurok and Karuk, and on my dad's side, I'm Yuki and Maidu. And we can't choose to speak all of those languages, so we had to make a conscious decision as a family which language to speak. So we made the conscious decision as a family to pursue teaching Tawadini to the children as hopefully their first language. In making that commitment, you were actually also embarking on your own language journey. Right, I realized I needed to become a language learner myself. And I had heard the language being spoken, I had gone to community language classes, but I wasn't a real learner. So in order to do that, I had to think about the things I would need to know in order to talk to my children. And you know, when they're babies, it's really easy because you just talk to them and you don't have to be able to say, they don't say anything back. So you don't really need to be able to have two-sided conversations. And then it just grew from there. When they start to play, you need language for that. When they start to potty train, you need language for that. And you're reading books. And then we had another child. And then how do you talk about the interactions between brothers and sisters? And so I would pick up little phrases here and there. And then eventually I felt like I couldn't move further than what I was doing. The basic like second person commands and first person like I am hungry types things. And so I apprenticed my husband Paiwa and he was able to help me figure out how to, you know, break down those verb paradigms, go from, you know, present to future to past tense and really become more situationally fluent in what I was doing. Queen. Queen. Who name? Queen. Nun. Queen. Nun. Queen. Nun. Queen. Were you thinking about this path before you had children? No. <laughs> um, I grew up with the thought that, you know, like, it's important to be in the workforce, it's important to be a contributor, and so that was a huge change for me. Uh, you know, going to school for science and then saying, okay, you know, I'm gonna be a stay-at-home mom now, and not only that, I'm gonna homeschool all my kids. That was a huge step for me, and it was really enlightening, because I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions about, you know, stay-at-home moms and a lot of misconceptions about homeschooling moms. She, queen. I, I, queen. Wasani, queen. Do, wasani, do, queen. I, what? What? Queen. Oh, shuk, ye, an, da, I really want the kids to know who they are. And if I can do that through language learning, if I can do that through adaptive science around certain traditional stories, the more we can connect them to their place, to their culture, the more they'll grow up and know who they are. Children learn in their own unique ways. And they learn better when you present them with topics that have to do with their home place, their foods, their plants, because it is based in who they are. Don't you eat them, Chaya?
that's the most important thing because then that in turn makes them better humans, which I think is the goal in the end, no matter what, is to create good humans. Yeah, I always knew, like, I needed to learn our language. I need to make this a priority at some point. And, and honestly, I just really took it for granted, you know, that I have Metlochne, my, my father, as a resource. And Metlochne's done a lot of work. <laughs> He's done an expansive amount of work. And so our culture, our dances, too, you know, that was just something that we did. You know, when we got to a certain age, you danced. It was like, do you want to go play soccer today? And like, you know, no, I don't want to. It's like, okay, then I don't play soccer. It was. We're going to a dance, you're of age, go get in line. And the language wasn't like that per se. It was never like you're going to learn the language. We were kind of given more of the choice. I didn't really take it serious. You know, just being a kid and dealing with everything else. And I knew it was needed, but the urgency wasn't there. You know, we believe our ancestors are always around us. They're always here. They're always watching over us. And if you need help, you just ask for it. So that day, there was a higher power watching over me. Cognitively, I couldn't comprehend that. I was going to be in a plane crash. I closed my eyes because I was on my contacts, and I didn't want glass to cut my eyes. And, you know, being conscious throughout this whole experience, and then what opened my eyes and wondering <laughs> whether I'm alive or dead, because I mean, I literally ran away from a plane crash and came out fine with a, cu a couple of bruises and nine stitches, and that's it. One of the first things that came to my mind and that, you know, as, as I could see clearly, I felt like, um, was I need to learn my language. Like, like almost died, like second thought was, I need to learn my language. And so I started taking it serious, made it a priority, and started a master apprentice program, and that led to grad school, and then that led to working on language with my family. And I feel like a lot of ways it was a not so gentle push by the creator to say, hey, wake up. <laughs> away for a while and we moved up to Eugene. Paiwa pursued his graduate degrees at the University of Oregon and we decided to move home because too many old people were passing and we were missing the opportunities to be with them and to hear their stories and to record the language that they knew and we knew that we couldn't miss anymore so we needed to come home so that we could expose ourselves to those people and their memories and have them be a part of our lives, but also expose our children to the people who are really important to them. So we decided to move back to Crescent City where we have a larger family base to connect more with all of those people. And as you connected more and more in the language, and I'm sure it's been a daily process, have you felt a, a shift in your life? You know, being able to express myself in more than one language, you know, I also speak Spanish, so in three languages, is really fun for me. And, but also on a whole nother level, speaking the language really helps me connect to the people who were here before and to remember who we are and what it is we were put here to do. 
And that's really important because our ancestors that survived and the ones who didn't survive, they sacrificed for us. And it's really important for us to now be able to turn around and sacrifice for them. And if that means taking time out of our lives to help this language survive, then that's what we need to do. Santas. Chesney. Chesney. I feel very fortunate to have a wife who's not Tawa, but understands the importance of her learning language and hearing the language be used from both parents. If we're going to be successful, she's become a giant resource and advocate for the language. And, you know, she's been that you know, little prod in my back sometimes, like, come on, you know, let's. You know, let's get using more language, let's do this, and we're each other's support. Learning how to learn the language is its own process. Our language is a verb-based language, and you can tack all this information onto a verb, and it means this in English. And it's like, oh, what are these sounds in the language? You know, what's a you know, and no, so now, so now you want me to say dog is ah? I was like, yeah, let's hear it. So that the nation nachechate. There's more resources now to learn our language than there ever has been. But it's still not the same as if you try to learn French or Spanish or German or Hmong or, I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's just not there. Shut down, shut down. Oh, that's when, huh? Or, that's when? And then you got to find people to speak with. So it's a process, but you know, you keep at it. You want Chishni? Or Nensha? No, kids are sponges. Like you start using language, they listen, pick it up, and they start using it if that's all the input they get. They're just wonderful little beings that love input and will give it back to you. Um, adults are the ones that have the issues. It's more emotional. It's like, you have to deal with the history of why don't we know our language. It's this huge language barrier. Like for me, you know, I had to I had to go that through a little bit. Like I had my dad for all these years. You know, I lived in the house for all these years, and you know, I didn't learn more language. You know, and you know, there's people that are his age that are like my aunt and uncle. They they only spoke the language to me, and like I have a hard time saying things now, or don't know why, or like I can't say the language. You know, so those are things they got to deal with, and then acknowledge it, let it go, and then go on and using the language. And so that takes, a, that takes a lot of discussion, that takes a lot of processing, internal processing, and then moving on. 
Choosing to learn a language and use the language is a life choice. It's it's a lifetime's work. And just like your diet and your exercise, the reason why you make those choices is because you know you'll be a healthier person. And you know that you'll be a healthier person for your family. And you'll be a better model for your kids. And they're going to be healthier people. Because they're not going to have to deal with all those other barriers that people our, our age or older are dealing with. So they can go out into the world and you know, just be the wonderful people they are. I wanted my kids to know their grandparents, you know, have their own relationship so they can learn as much from them as, as they could. When their Ahmet talks to them, they can think about things in that lens. Paiwa's mother, Lena Bomlin, is a powerful matriarch in her community. As a medicine woman, social worker, and child advocate, she has dedicated her life to supporting her family and healing the multi-generational traumas impacting indigenous peoples. Going through my journey in life, my biggest role has been as a parent and as a grandparent. And in our community for many, many years, there weren't a lot of positive role models for Indian kids. And that was what Laura and I have always chosen to do. In learning the language, you learn how Indian people think and how they live and what they do. So you'll learn how we view a river, a mountain, a rock, the animals, the birds. It's all in the language because it's the worldview, how we think. It's not something you can touch with your hand, but you know it's real. Make it where society makes it okay for kids to learn their language. We've had counselors in the school system tell kids, don't take that Talawa language, it doesn't do you any good. It's like, really? In today's society, we still have people with those kind of narrow minds? The impact that you make on someone's life, it becomes a part of who you are, which impacts how you impact someone else, and it goes on and on and on like this, just forever, right? We have fought these battles. We thought our kids wouldn't have to fight them. Our kids have to fight them. And maybe our grandkids will have to fight them. As long as we keep moving forward, we're still here. We're still talking to the spirits in our language. And it makes a difference. Language and culture and you know who we are is purpose. And when that goes away, that is a vast amount of information that is lost and that relationship that is lost. It is 
unquantifiable in my opinion. And dismissing it, it just shows a lack of understanding and respect of our environment. Having spoken a language that connects you to place and connects you to spirits, I can see that when the language is missing, when the language is gone, there's something always that you need to look for because you know it's there, you just don't know where it is or you don't know how to access it. But you can feel it from the land, you can feel it from the plants, you can feel it from the spirits. And that's why I really love the term of sleeping language because languages just go to sleep. They're always there, ready to be reawakened and used again. You just have to find the right opportunity and the right medium to do that in. We know that different people believe different things and that different people are from different places. And all of those places are connected to languages. And we need those languages in order to fully feel the impacts that they have on the land. They're saying now that science is finally discovering that indigenous people knew what they were talking about when they were talking about how many different species of redwood trees there were or that certain salamanders can only live in certain areas of the redwood forest. And they're like, oh yeah, they were right. It's like, well, you know, we've been here for 10,000, you know, 14,000 years or time immemorial. We know that we're right because this is our place. So I think for the greater world, the more diverse languages there are being spoken, I feel like the more people will be able to identify with where they come from. That allows them to be centered, more culturally centered and more spiritually centered and not be so wandering and looking for what they've lost. Language Keepers is produced in partnership with Advocates for Indigenous California Language Survival. You can experience video introductions and accompanied biographies of the voices you hear at languagekeepers.us. Acknowledging the original indigenous inhabitants of the land you live on is a key step towards healing the legacy of colonization. You can do this by visiting native-land.ca or downloading the Native Land app developed by Native Land Digital. This episode is directed, produced, and edited by Adam Lofton. 
It's produced and narrated by Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Original music by Matthew Atticus Berger and H. Scott Salinas. Narration is written by Adam Lofton, Chelsea Steinauer Scudder, and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Sound mix and design is by D. Chris Smith. Tallawadani music recording by Jamie and Milt Lee. Sound recording is by Ben Solitiano, with additional production support from Devin Talaton. Language Keepers would not have been possible without the collaboration and support of the Talawadani, Karuk, Wukchumni, and Kawaiasu communities featured in this podcast. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Kalyapea Foundation. Our original essays, films, in-depth interviews, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.